You can turn to 1 John in your Bibles uh, this evening, and um, opening section we're looking at from uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 2. There are three sets of contrasts there in this text between false professors of Christianity and true Christians. Uh, So we kind of introduced this section last week. We'll make a little progress into looking at the first of these contrasts this week, and hopefully next week I'm going to wrap it all up in time for Christmas, but uh, well, remains to be seen. Uh, but to, just to remind you of kind of what we talked a little bit about last week, and then kind of get the sense of the, this section as we introduce this time, let me put um, John's pastoral concerns before you just by asking a few rhetorical questions. You can just kind of think about this in your mind. Have you ever been in a situation where you've seen a professing Christian kind of become disenchanted with church, start to be critical, criticize leadership, criticize other people in the church, criticize the theology or the direction or the decisions or whatever it is, and then that person starts to you can watch it. You can see they start to harden, kind of grow cold, and um, the countenance changes. And eventually that person that you once saw as thriving, loving the church, but they've hardened and they've turned cold and walked away from the church. Has you ever seen that happen? And has that troubled your heart? What about someone who you have known and uh, known for some time, but then they start to pursue a particular sin or that person is becomes characterized by ongoing habits of sin. And you've, you've seen this from a distance, and as you get closer, you start to realize, man, there's some issues here. And so you lovingly confront your friend, but your friend takes offense and minimizes the sin, pulls away. Maybe the person counter-accuses and says, you know, taking exception with your tone, you know, the tone police, you know, or finds fault in how you handled it. Well, you didn't go through the proper steps here. Have you ever had a hard time in a situation like that processing what happened as you look back and that person kind of pulls away from you and then takes off? Have you ever processed in processing that thought about, boy, what went wrong? I mean, maybe it was me. Maybe maybe my tone was too harsh. Was it my fault? And then have you wondered, ever wondered, man, could these people who seem so faithful seem to be so filled with life and joy, so surprising to find that they turn their direction, leave. Could that ever happen to me? I mean, what prevents me from doing the same thing, from falling away? These are the kinds of questions that were troubling the Christians in the churches that John was overseeing as a pastor, and the churches he was pastoring as well. I'd probably say that every faithful pastor throughout time, all the way through uh, the centuries, has had these same kinds of situations and same kind of concerns coming up in their churches as well. This is something that happens in every single church. And John tells them, and you can look, if you're in 1 John, just go to chapter 2, verse 19. Look how John explains this. He says, they, this is the people who departed, they went out from us, but they were not of us. So they were here, they were physically located here, but they weren't really of the same spirit. They weren't of the same union, communion, fellowship. They weren't really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
They went out that it might become plain, apparent, manifest, that they're not all of us. Those words from John are actually words of pastoral comfort for a troubled flock. These Christians are watching friends and family members leave the church, embrace new doctrines, doctrines that are contrary to the, to the doctrines that they'd received in the church. They, they're minimizing sin. They're rejecting believers, believers that you know and love and appreciate, and they turn away. So, quick question here. How is it a comfort to know, since, again, these are words of pastoral comfort, how is it a comfort for all the troubled minds and hearts? How is it a a comfort to know that these people were never of us? Why is that pastorally, shepherding-wise, why is that a pastoral shepherding thing to do to point out that they're not all of us? Why is this a comfort to Christians? Start with you, Joel. You're on. Am I on? Okay. We don't need to be worried about leaving the church because those who are truly saved, as it says here, they will continue in the faith. So when we see those leave who were once with us, we don't need to worry about, well, did they lose their salvation? No, because they never had it to start with. So we don't need to fear that if I am a true Christian, I will lose my faith and walk out on the church. Because if I do, that proves I was not saved in the first place. So we don't need to be worried about those who leave and say, well, they lost their salvation. No, they weren't saved to begin with. Okay, thank you. Yeah, uh, Katerina? Um, it just makes you, like, makes you realize that even if you know, they looked saved on the outside, their heart was different. And it can give you assurance that you know your heart before God. You don't know their heart. Um, so, okay. yeah. Yeah, so kind of joining together with Joel's comment that, you know, you could just say, it, this has been said many times before, but time and truth go hand in hand. And, and certain people can, can fake things on the outside for a while. In fact, some people can fake it for a long, long time if they're in a church that never actually confronts them. It's when the, the application of the truth comes closer and closer and gets nearer and nearer to the heart Well, that's when the heart kind of rebels, the heart shows itself, and they can't actually stay. And what, back to what Joel was saying, he's saying the explanation for that is that they were never of us. He's he's saying that that's a comfort to know for you, because like you said, you know your own heart before God. Um, And even when we're confused about our hearts, God is greater than our hearts, isn't he? So, thank you. Uh, Ron. And then uh, one more. I think you've got one over there, yeah. Kristen, go ahead. I think I see where the pastoral staff or elders should be comforted in <clears throat> knowing that they're sharing the truth and that the people that stayed should be comforted in that truth so that you're trying to spare the people that are staying the confusion of why they left. Right. So there's a comfort for that. Yeah, there is. That's it, And it can be, uh, you, you talked about the pastoral staff or you could say elders, or even just take it out of like official leadership, but people who are more mature Christians in a church, sometimes it can be really difficult to have those hard conversations. It could be discouraging. And so when you take the risk to love somebody like that by confronting them in their doctrine or their sin or whatever it is, and uh, you get blowback and you get unpleasant conversations and you get ridiculed or slandered or 
whatever the case is. That could be really discouraging, but it's a comfort, isn't it? That John, he's right in there in the mix, and every single one of us who joins him in doing that, we're right in there in the mix too. Yeah, thank you. I uh, was thinking about this first all week, actually. I found out about a Christian artist I enjoyed in my college years, Derek Webb. Mm. He's totally apostatized, and yeah. I was thinking about it. He's actually going it. to Christian Music Award nights dressed, as a, dressed in drag yeah. these days. Yep. So that was disturbing, mm-hmm. and I was just I was meditating on this verse, and I remember early in my uh, being discipled in college, someone reminded me, my disciple reminded me that, you know, Jesus says it over and over, those who endure to the end will be saved. Mm-hmm. And because we were talking about someone who she was close with who fell away and how that is such a comfort and who endures us to the end, it's Christ. Mm-hmm. And he is our only hope for salvation. And he, that song, He Will Hold Me Fast, mm-hmm. came out a few years ago. And I think that really paints that picture of how that comforts us. Sure does. And, and it, is, it is also such a comfort to know that, like, he will hold me fast. He will do it. It's not me that holds myself. John MacArthur used to say this all the time. If I could lose my salvation, I would. Um, and that's because he has no confidence in the flesh. He's right to say that. He has no confidence in himself. But our confidence was never in ourself. That's not how we got into this whole salvation thing. It's because our confidence is in Christ. And he is powerful enough to hold us. Romans chapter 8. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? Anything? Nothing. Nothing can do that. Thank you. All right, so um, this, this, um, this issue of people leaving and, and um, you know, before they leave, they're within the church body and they're within a, a, an actual good, faithful local church. And you see this kind of... Um, you know, this kind of bubbling up of controversy or division or factions that form. And, and I mean, they, when, they, when they leave, they're not always leaving quietly. <laughs> they're, all, they're not always doing it in an easy way. Some, some people do just want to escape and, and avoid any uh, confrontation. Other people, they want to, they want to make a point. And, um, and this, is, this is not a sign of, a, of an unhealthy church when this happens. It's actually, this can be the sign of a good church that's actually bringing loving confrontation. Paul points out a similar kind of a phenomenon in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 11, 18 and 19. He's confronting, you know, the Corinthian church because the Corinthian church, as we see in chapter one, had factions. In fact, they rejoiced in their factions. They took pride in the different teachers that they lined up under. And he says in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, 18, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. And then he goes on to say something I think is kind of surprising. He says, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. That's an interesting comment. It's, it's as if in the providence of God and the sovereignty of God, he allows weeds to be sown among the wheat in the church. In order that... The wheat, the true Christians, the true sheep, when they see goats acting like goats, when they see weeds growing up with no fruit on it, they can become more discerning. They can actually see by contrast, oh, I'm not that, I'm this. I'm not with those people, the faction people, the factious people, I'm with these people. That's, that's comforting to know. 
that this isn't happening because something's wrong, it's actually happening because something's right. God is testing us. God is putting people in our midst that they do not fit and they are not of us. And they eventually depart. And before they depart, they sometimes try to do damage. But God will hold us. God will protect us. God will hold his church. The Lord is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have that promise. So these are all comforting things and they're sprinkled throughout the New Testament, which tells us that uh, this is normal. This is normal in the Christian life. It's normal in the Christian church. And it's a vital pastoring, uh, shepherding responsibility to point out to the flock who to follow and who to avoid. It's it's important part of pastoral ministry to try to teach discernment to the church. It's a protection to the flock. It's a protection to each, you know, the flock as a whole and each individual sheep as well to for them to listen to the right voices, to mimic the right examples, to know who to follow, who to listen to, and who to reject and disregard. There's another question that comes to mind for those who are watching their friends and family walk away. They might might say, "What about me? How do I how am I going to know?" that I won't walk away. And Katerina, you talked about, well, I know my own heart, but sometimes, sometimes through circumstance, sometimes through sickness, sometimes through trial or whatever, our hearts can become kind of confused, can't they? And sometimes we don't know our own hearts and we can be uh, a little bit um, disturbed or troubled. And John, in 1 John, if you're still in 1 John 2, he said that, uh, read verse 19, but he says in verse 20, for those who are asking that question, what about me? He says, but you, you who have stayed in contrast to those who have left, you have been anointed by the Holy One and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lie is of the truth. So if you are one of those who notices the lie and says something's wrong there, you know, maybe maybe don't have all the education or the experience or whatever to really discern exactly what's wrong with what's been said or what the lie is. But you can detect it. The Holy Spirit within you, the whole, you have this anointing from the Holy One. You've been anointed by Him. The Holy Spirit lives within you. He is your internal lie detector. He is your internal truth teacher. And He helps bring things to your mind. Kind of gives you that spidey sense that something's off there. But then He drives you back to the truth. Listen, when you see that happening in your life and you see yourself gravitating toward what the church is teaching, what the elders are teaching, you can be comforted to know that that's not of you. That's not because you're bright, brilliant, you're better than anybody else. It's because God is protecting you. He's he's kind of corralling you with the rest of the sheep and keeping you protected and safe within the flock. That's his doing. John gets that, uh, what he said there in verses 20 and 21, chapter 2, he gets that from the New Covenant, that uh, famous text in Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer, this is part of the New Covenant, promise the New Covenant, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. That's a promise of the new covenant. That's him granting us the knowledge of the truth, the internal indwelling truth teacher, truth illuminator, lie detector within us, the Holy Spirit, with our new nature, ministering to our new nature and teaching us, driving us to the truth to help to understand the truth and keeping us close to him from the greatest to the least. 
Everybody in between, from the high to the low, everybody in between. And then he says, for I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. That's really important because those who are reconciled to the Lord by the forgiveness of their sins, they know the Lord, they're taught by the Lord, and as a new covenant community, they are defined by this. They share in common an attitude towards sin and towards sinning. They see sin is the problem. Sin is what separates them from God. Sin is the issue. Sin is what they needed to be removed and taken out of the way so they could know God, be reconciled to God to begin with. That's our entire community. If you're, if you're born again, if you're a true believer, that defines you. We share a common attitude towards sin, towards sinning. And going back to 1 John 1, 5 and following, let's, let's read that. But that's what we see in these opening verses, is our attitude towards sin as true believers, it's the same. Those who are factious, those who leave, those who depart, they reject our definitions of sin. They reject the common definition, common concern about sin and sinning. That's what we see here. This is the message, verse five, we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, well, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Well, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. You can see how much the attitude towards sin plays a prominent part of this whole first section. And for every true believer, when John says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, every true believer looks at that and goes, I mean, it's just, I am so thankful because I don't want to sin. That's what every true believer says. Anybody who's not a true believer, that just bounces right off of them because they don't care. Sin doesn't really register very high on their minds. Maybe some cultural you know, serious thing like drunkenness and sexual immorality, taking drugs, shooting people, violent crime, whatever. Uh, those things are like, well, I don't want to be that defined by that. But, but all kinds of, you know, who, who wrote the book? Respectable Sins, Jerry Bridges, I think it was. All kinds of things like that. They don't even notice it. Don't even notice it. True believers notice sin and want it gone. We noted last week that John is using the standard of God who is light, verse 5, and in whom is no darkness at all. He uses that standard to expose the Gnostics or proto-Gnostics, incipient Gnosticism, those who left as false professors. And then he uses that standard that God is light to strengthen the discernment of true believers. And it's for the sake of their assurance. And the test he's providing through this section is this, how do you deal with personal sin? How do you deal with it? You may remember... We pointed out last time the section here that we've just read has six conditional sentences. And when I say a conditional sentence, I mean an if-then statement. So you can see that pattern there. 
those six conditional sentences, the if-then statements are paired up. So there are three pairs of conditional sentences which show the difference between true and false professions of faith. And John starts with that false claim. If we say, so it's a claim, it's, a, it's words only, right? Chapter one, verse six, verse eight, verse 10, false professors of Christianity, they make verbal claims. That's really all they've got. They got words. They claim they have fellowship with God. They claim they don't have any sin. They claim that they, in fact, don't sin. But in how they live, that belies or disproves what they claim. True believers, by contrast, they demonstrate new life by, chapter 1, verse 7, by walking in the light. Chapter 1, verse 9, by confessing their sins. They're confessors of sins. And then chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, new believers demonstrate new life by relying wholly on the work of Christ. So they walk in the light, they confess their sins, they rely on the work of Christ. And these verbs are in a present tense form, so it means kind of habitually, ongoing, continually, continuously, constantly doing that. There are, it's not that they're perfect in it, we'll get into that, but, but there's a trajectory of their life that they're growing in that pattern. That's what characterizes their life, okay? So we'll start looking at the three tests here, um, and we're only gonna get to the first one uh, this evening. And uh, boy... There's a lot of pages left for the time we have, uh, but that's, that's typical. I'm just going to talk faster, all right? So test number one, test number one, I mentioned this last time, but test number one is the test of a personal lifestyle, personal lifestyle, how we walk, how we live our lives, and that's verses six and seven. So notice that again, if we say we have fellowship with him, and, and I want you to look as I read through this, look for repeated words, repeated concepts, okay? If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie, we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. What terms, what concepts do you see repeated in those couple verses? Do you see any? Yeah. I see a lot of we's, like yeah, that's the really, collective we. I'm really glad you pointed that out. So we is first person plural, right? As John, John is speaking as if he's among them. That's really important. We're going to come back to that. Thank you, Matthew. Anybody else see anything repeated? How about use twice? Eh, I hear bye. Bad, dear. Bye. <laughs> Microphone, thank you. <laughs> uh, fellowship. Fellowship, we have fe yes. yes. Fellowship, fellowship together if we're walking okay. in the light. All right, so you see fellowship in each of those verses. Thank you very much. Somebody else want to use a microphone and tell me what they see repeated. All right. Juliana. <laughs> All right. <laughs> uh, he says a lot of light and darkness, and light is associated with good and darkness with bad, okay, which is you. common in Scripture. Yes, it is common in Scripture. Thank you very much. Darkness being absence of light or not light, so we can see that concept of light-darkness, that contrast, and, and light is certainly repeated. There's, there's, uh, there's one more. One more clear one. Walking. Hmm. Okay, wait, hold on to the microphone. What does walking mean? What is he referring to? How we live our lives. Okay, Not good. just Thank walking you. down the street, but what we do, our actions, how Excellent. we live. Metaphor. Metaphor. Just like light and darkness, metaphor, walking, metaphor. Fellowship, though, not a metaphor. This is actual reality. So, so those, uh, the fellowship, the walk, the light, or darkness, as in not light, 
Um, and then also, as Matthew pointed out at the very beginning, the use of the first person plural, the we, the us, that, that first person plural used about seven times here, just in these two verses. So come back to that one in a moment. But first, look at the claim of fellowship in verse six versus the reality of fellowship in verse seven. And this is tested by the way one walks, by how someone lives his or her life. How do they live? How do they practice? What's the pattern of their life? What's the characteristic habits of their life? Is it like the rest of the world? Can you tell really, really no difference between you and your neighbors? Or is your habit of life something quite different, demonstrably different? What's the standard of testing here? The standard of testing is whether one lives, walks, conducts himself or herself by living in the light or out of the light, that is in darkness. So are you living in light or are you living in darkness? Are you living in not light? What does living in darkness look like? Is John here talking only about those who live in drunken debauchery, in some form of extreme sexual immorality, or even mild sexual immorality? Is he talking about those who live a life of violent crime? Is that all that he means by walking in darkness? Paul says in Ephesians 4.25, He says, after speaking in Ephesians 4, 20 to 24, and giving a pattern of repentance, how to put off and put on, how to have your mind renewed, put off old behaviors, put off sin, put on new behaviors, behaviors. he gives a a bunch of examples or four instances in verses 25 and following in Ephesians chapter 4. And Paul starts with this one. Therefore, having put away falsehood, is how it comes across in the ESV, More literally, it's having put off the lie. Definite article, it's it's the lie. Let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. Having put off the lie, singular, the lie, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. What's the lie? Well, in context, it goes back to verses 17 to 19, this whole Gentile way of living life, this it's summarized in Ephesians 4, 17 and 19. So it's, you could say in using an um, illustration that Jesus used, it's or a parable that he told, it's living as if eating and drinking and buying and selling and marrying and giving in marriage as if that's all there is. That's all that counts. It's putting all the priority on this life as if this life is all that matters rather than the life to come. So you could say then it's being living the lie or living and walking in darkness. It's being a bad steward. It's, I mean, it's as simple as that. I mean, it doesn't have to be extreme immorality that characterizes someone living in darkness. Someone living in darkness is just being a, a bad steward, squandering the resources God has given us. And, and I could name all the resources God has given you by his kindness, by his grace, but let me just say time. Time is that resource that once, it's the only resource that you have. Once you spend it, it's gone. You cannot replace it. Money you can replace energy you can replace, all that stuff. Time, once you spend it, it's gone. And if we squander resources that God gives us on things that rot, the things that will eventually burn, the things that will pass away, rather than investing his resources he's given to us as a good steward of the manifold grace of God, that is to walk in darkness. Those who don't live by Matthew 6.33, seeking his kingdom, first his kingdom and his righteousness above all things, they're walking in darkness and not walking in light. So we could ask this question, how much must one one walk in the light? What is the standard that God points to? He points to as God is in the light, right? 
So God's the standard. Huh. God is the standard. All right. I'll have, I'll have you answer this question. Where do, we, where do we see how to live? If God is the standard, if he being light, God is light, in him is no darkness of all. If he's the standard, and yet, God is invisible, right? So if he's the standard, where do we see how to live and walk in the light of God? What example do we look to? Christ. Christ. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus Christ, he is, he is the standard. Anybody else? Anybody else? The Bible. The Bible. The Bible is where we see how to walk in the light, how to, use, how to be a good steward of resources, how to live, how to have a, a different pattern of behavior than the rest of the world. And what's in the Bible besides Jesus Christ? You're, I know your you're, you're, you're mouth, you know, lip syncing something to me, and I have no idea what it is. I'm sorry. Uh, Jesus' example trickled down to the apostles who were directly with him. Okay. So we can read in Acts and read the letters to all the churches to hear how Thank the you. apostles interpreted Jesus. And then we have you <laughs> and other church leaders okay, who have studied to... God's word and are living in God's word. Fantastic. Thank you so much. So Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ, right? Imitate me as I follow Christ. So we've got the apostles that you said, who set this, this foundation of revelation for us in the word, the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament. They set a foundation. They teach us the, just what Juliana said. The whole Bible is filled with examples of how to walk in darkness, or how people walk in darkness, and how alternatively Christians walk in the light, believers walk in the light. And there's the apostles and the way they saw Jesus walk and they walk as he walked. And then there's everybody that the apostles taught. And then it goes all the way down through the centuries of, of Christians in the church who mature Christians setting an example for other Christians. So we see it in flesh and blood right around us. Thank you so much. You filled in all the details. Stay up guys, because I've got another question here. So what example do we look to? I think you made that clear. Um, so is, is John talking here then about when we're going to be living in the light, not in darkness, and walking in light, is he talking about perfect orthodoxy? No flaws in doctrine. Is he talking about no doctrinal error whatsoever? Is he talking about perfect, perfect orthopraxy? Perfect practice, absolute purity, holiness of life. Okay, so as I say, perfection, you're going to say, eh, something doesn't seem right about perfection, but it ought to be probably, but if you're going to say no, make sure you support that from one of the verses that are here. No. I'm going to say no because of verses 2, 1 and 2. Verses 2, 1 and 2. So make your point. So is it going to be perfect? No. Um, because he's writing so we may not sin, so we're going to strive for holiness. We're going to strive. It's, a, it's an attitude of your heart that you want that. You want to be pure, you want to be holy, you want to be righteous, you want to know God, but we're still dealing with our flesh and our sin and we're going to fail, but we're covered and we're justified in Christ. So we always go back to his righteousness. And, and you see John returning to this point in every single section there. But if anyone does sin, so I'm writing these things so you won't sin, but if anyone does sin, we have a, an advocate and a propitiation. If you back up, he says, if we confess our sins, so he's, he's assuming we will sin and you need to confess your sins. And then he points again to the character of God. He's faithful and just. But we back up to our own text, we see, and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin, right? So in every single section, he's pointing us back to atoning work. 
advocacy work of Christ. Yes. I was going to say Romans 7 says the same thing where Paul says. I said these verses, though. Oh. <laughs> You're right, though. You're right about Romans 7 as well. Paul says the same thing, doesn't right. he? Right. Yeah, thank you. All right. Uh, Jeff, I want to get to you. I really do, but I'm also running up against the, the, the enemy, the clock. So when John says, if we claim to have fellowship with him, claim to have fellowship with him, active voice, verb, echomen, um, having ongoing fellowship, so it refers to a constant, ongoing, habitual fellowship, an abiding partnership. We cannot make that claim, John is saying, at the same time, continually, habitually, while we go in the opposite direction. You can't say that and then be walking in a completely opposite direction. If we do, our claim is exposed as false. That's what he says there. You're lying and you're not practicing the truth. He's very clear about that. So, therefore, your claim, I have fellowship with him, I have ongoing fellowship with God, that's a lie. No fellowship exists there. On the other hand, John says, if we are walking, again, that active voice verb, uh, peripatomen, it's, it's making a habit of walking or continuing to walk, continuing to live. The first word of assurance that he gives to the believers here is we do have fellowship. You do have fellowship if you're walking in that direction. John says, actually, we have fellowship with one another. And notice John is inserting himself into that. We, we have fellowship with one another. So he's talking about the, the people who are his readers and he, the writer, they have fellowship together. That means the church and that apostle are in fellowship with one another. And this goes back to verse three to see the significance of this. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So our fellowship, it's an apostolic fellowship. It's a Christological fellowship. And that's a fellowship then that reconciles us as sinners, redeemed and forgiven sinners, that reconciles us to God, brings us into fellowship with the triune God himself, the Father, his Son, the Holy Spirit. It's not the factious the divisive who are in fellowship, no matter how they intimidate the rest of the tender-hearted believers in the church. And those who get a hold of kind of pet doctrines, popular doctrines, those who get a hold of kind of a, a brash way of living and speaking and sinning, they can really intimidate people in the church because people are sensitive of conscience and all that. Listen, the factious, they are not the ones who are in fellowship. It's those who are unified in truth, obedience and love who are driven by love we are the ones truly in the fellowship and again back to what christy was saying it's not sinless perfection john is talking about it's it's talking about a godward direction a trajectory of life and how do we know that what justifies that because that second word of assurance not only the first word is you are in the fellowship you truly are in the fellowship and you have that fellowship but the second word of assurance the blood of jesus his son is cleansing us from all sin. That need for cleansing of sins that we commit along the way, God makes provision for that and for all those who walk in the light. Again, that's an active voice verb, uh, katharidzai. Uh, Katharidzo is a verb that means to, uh, to purify or cleanse. So he's talking about constant purification, constant cleansing while we are walking in the light, while we're habitually living in the light as he's in the light, God looks at the blood of Christ and his atonement 
and he sees you through that blood atonement. All of your sin wiped away. All of your sin gone. That is such a, an assurance to us. Again, he is talking about direction, not perfection of life, but direction of life. This is progressive sanctification, an upward trajectory of greater doctrinal fidelity. So understanding doctrinal truth, theological clarity, that's part of it. And the other part of it is not only just what we understand and what we believe, what we affirm, what we confess, but it's also then how we live our life as a result of that. Okay? So it's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. It's right understanding of truth and doctrine and theology, and it's also right behavior that is consistent with that truth and that doctrine. Okay? So that's the first test, the first claim of fellowship versus uh, the first test is the claim of fellowship versus the reality of fellowship. And those repeated terms, fellowship, walk, light, uh, that's all there. I want to come back to Matthew's point and what he observed in that repetition of the first person plural, we and us. Um, you know, I, I'm asking the question here, why do you think that John is inserting himself into almost every sentence like that? Why, what is he teaching us by inserting himself in there? Well, he's teaching us by his own example to be self-examining. He's, he's applying these tests to himself. He's putting himself underneath the authority of the test. He shows there's no partiality. He doesn't say, well, you know, I was and as an apostle, I'm kind of guaranteed in this whole thing. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make, these are rules for thee, not for me. You know, he doesn't say that. He's putting himself underneath these, these standards. Paul said the same thing, Galatians 1.8. But even if we, Apostles, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you. Let him be a curse. Let him be anathema. And John is writing in that same spirit of, of subjecting himself, even as an apostle, to the standard of this test, standard of truth, showing a spirit of humility and personal concern. So if mighty apostles, giants in the faith, if they humbled themselves underneath the scrutiny of the word, ought we not to follow their example? Isn't that how we ought to think? Do we consider ourselves to be beyond scrutiny, beyond living in the light, being challenged? What should we observe in John's use of the first person plural? Several things about his mindset here. We see a virtue of humility, which is the fruit of the Spirit. It creates a meek frame of mind, not, a, not an aggressive, uh, self-confident, braggadocious um, kind of swagger. That's not how Christians are. Christians are those who are kind, and meek because they are humble before God and they're meek before other people. You can certainly see that in John. Meekness creates this openness to accountability, willing to live in the, willingness to live in the light and put one's life and doctrine to the test. And then that practice of self-examination is this ongoing aspect of the Christian life and what it means to live in the light. So just an ongoing self, self-examination. This is so important because how we walk in the light, how we live, how we deal with anything that compromises our walking in light, this is really what distinguishes our profession of faith as true or false. When we deal honestly with our own sin, when we look at ourselves in view of the gospel, it helps us to grow strong in assurance. In fact, for a Christian who sins, every time that they sin, it drives them back to the cross and back to the gospel to remind themselves of the objective reality that God has done it all. And he's forgiven you and you're cleansed if you confess your sin. Your heart is humble. 
It just further strengthens your assurance. Now, do not continue in sin that grace may increase. That's, you know, that's the, uh, what people charge Paul with teaching. But still, even when we do sin, we see even God's providence in that to help us to even to use something terrible like our sin to drive us back to the cross and see the greatness of God, the greatness of our Savior. That deepens our fellowship, increases our joy, and that's what John wants for us. So that's the first test, personal lifestyle, how we walk, how we live our lives. It's about how we think, what we believe, and how we live. Well, considering the time, I'm going to close in prayer, and I'm sorry to have robbed you of prayer requests, but you are welcome to stay after I close in prayer. Share a prayer request among yourselves and pray for each other, okay? Father, thank you for the time we've had in your word. We thank you for these dear saints. We thank you for the privilege of being uh, a part of Grace Church, one of, one of your faithful local churches. And I know that there are many around the, the state, the country, the world that, that bear your name and bear the light, uh, walking in the light, not walking in darkness, but they are good examples to others of what it means to be in the fellowship of the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you to be counted among those churches. We ask that you continue to strengthen us and help us to walk consistently in the truth, that we know and understand our Bibles, its doctrine, the theology that, uh, that, that is harmonized in those doctrines. Uh, but then we would live consistently with the doctrine that we've received, that our lives would be filled with uh, gratitude and joy and the fruit of the Spirit that shapes and it shapes us you know, in the way we live, but also informs every word that we speak that actually confronts all of our attitudes and puts, them through, uh, puts our attitudes and tests all of our attitudes, all of our words, all of our thoughts, all of our imaginations through the grid of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We ask that uh, we'd be pleasing to you for your glory, Father, in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.